Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. I'm glad you can spend a few minutes with us because I have some really interesting guests. A little bit later on in the show, multi-award winning country artist Jason Blaine uh, joins me to talk about his new EP. It's called Go With Me. Now, you know him because he's had over 12 top 10 singles in Canada, hits like Countryside and Friends of Mine. And he's also, if you look at the writing credits on a ton of country hits with people like Chris Jansen and Petrick and Madeline Merlot and loads of others, you'll see his name there because he's written hits for a lot of other people. We'll get to him in just a little while. First up, though, we bring in a film legend. John Landis has directed some of the most popular movies of all time, including The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, Animal House, Three Amigos, Spies Like Us, Coming to America, An American Werewolf in London, and he also wrote and directed the groundbreaking Michael Jackson's Thriller. Now, when he's not making documentaries like Mr. Warmth, the Don Rickles Project these days, which won a bunch of Emmys, he's writing books. A few years ago, he wrote Monsters in the Movies. It's a look back at a hundred years of Monsters in the Movies from the very beginning right up until present day. And right now, he's got a new book out. And it's a fascinating collection of stories that are guaranteed to kind of give you a little chill. It's called John Landis Presents the Library of Horror Haunted Houses. Classic stories of doors that should never be opened. In this interview, we talk just a little bit about the book. We talk about movies. We talk about why people like to be scared at the movies. And once you get John Landis talking, you can't get him to stop talking. I loved it. I think you will too. We began this interview with John Landis telling me what he thought when the publisher approached him to do the book. And I got very excited. But then they said, but we really want the classics. We want really go back. We don't necessarily want brand new ones. That made it much more challenging. Mm. But I was able to get, I, I believe, a remarkable number of famous authors <laughs> that some people, I mean, here, now that you made me go get the book, I can, <laughs> I can tell you. I mean, it's got Henry James, Edgar Allan Poe, Algernon Blackwood, H.G. Wells, H.P. Lovecraft, and I have no idea. Do you know how to pronounce that? La, la I have no idea. I've, do you know, mm. I like to read. Mm -hmm. and I'm a bad example. I'm a high school dropout. But I discovered I'm much better read than all my PhD friends. <laughs> but what's interesting about reading as much as I have without an education <laughs> or without a high yep. school or college education, I'm constantly coming across words that I know what they mean, but I never have occasion to say them aloud. And you've so only I have ever no read idea them. how they're pronounced. That's right. You've only ever read them and you don't know how to pronounce them. This is, uh, there's a Facebook meme that goes around that says, don't ever, you know, uh, look down on someone for mispronouncing a word. It just means that they've only ever read it in a book, which is. Oh, I wish I had that. Do you know, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I had the completely humiliating experience. I was with Gore Vidal, distinguished man of letters, yes. quite a bitch, but an extraordinary brilliant guy. And I referred to something, I think I was at 18, and I referred to something as the epitome of ignorance. Mm. 
And he said, no, I believe that was. <laughs> but you know what? At least you got an amazing story. <laughs> well, everyone laughed and I was like, what? Huh? <laughs> but that's, you know, another one, I, I facade. Mm. For years, I thought that was facade. Facade. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, anyway, this guy, L-A-F-A-D-I-O Hearn, is a fascinating guy who's an American who went to Japan a long time ago and became deeply, deeply seeped in Japanese culture, eventually learned to read and write Japanese fluently, Mm -hmm. And he collected Japanese folk stories and ghost stories. There's a wonderful movie that I strongly recommend. You can find it on Amazon called Kwaidan. K-W-A-I-D-A-N. Uh, it's a Japanese movie. It's not new. It's, it's probably from the 60s or 70s. But it is a gorgeous, physically sumptuous, what's called a portmanteau. It's four or five stories. But they are all based on Japanese supernatural, extremely scary, and very beautiful stories that come from unpronounceable (laughs) herd. And he wrote a lot of really interesting books. Um, But I, if you talk to me about ghost in the movies, like I know a lot about that too, but Quiedon is well worth seeing for everyone. Also because the production design is so beautiful. It's a very beautifully made, gorgeous, technicolor, cinemascope spectacular, and such a, a wonderful movie. Anyway, he's in here too. So it's quite a cross-section of different authors. You're listening to my interview with John Landis, author of John Landis Presents The Library of Horror Haunted Houses, classic stories of doors that should never be opened. You say that you know a lot about ghosts in the movies. I'm unsurprised by that. But do you think that ghost stories in the movies can be as effective as they are on the page simply because the page demands that you use your imagination in a way that's different if it's being visualized in front of you in a film. Let me put it this way. Film, or I shouldn't call it film, motion pictures and literature, the written word, are two different things. And, um, oh gosh, my wife gave me a t-shirt once that said, Read the book, ignore the movie. (laughs) But the truth is, they're extremely different. Mm -hmm. And they can be equally rewarding. I love books. That's my main occupation when I'm not making or watching a movie. I love movies too. But I, (laughs) I really enjoy reading. And reading is a unique experience to you. It's totally individual. Mm -hmm. Where movies... And it's one of the tragedies of COVID and technology, but uh, the iPhone, you know, the computer. But movies are meant to be seen on a big screen with as many people as possible. The motion picture is truly, like theater, a group experience. 
because the larger the audience, the more people you see this tremendously large image, the more intense the experience. By that, especially in the two, I think, most unforgiving genres, which is comedy and horror, because both fear and laughter are contagious. And they both also, this is going to sound really odd, but they are, when done correctly, <laughs> they invoke a physical spastic response, a laugh or a gasp or a scream. These are, these are like seizures. These are out of your control <laughs> and they're boo like that. And those things, the more people around you laughing, laughing and the more people around you who are scared, I'll never forget seeing The Exorcist in a theater. Mm. I, I, I went to see it with uh, two friends who are a little older than I, but both had been altar boys. And were now, you know, lapsed Catholics, but nonetheless had been altar boys, which I didn't think about. And I'm, you know, I don't know what you'd call me, an atheist, but, you know, Hitler, throw me on the truck. I'm Jewish and uh, Jewish identified. Mm -hmm. And also, I, I like it, too. Um, anyway, when I saw the movie, I do not believe in the devil. I don't accept Christ as uh, my Lord and Savior. When I saw that film, any good work of art, whether it's a painting or a poem or a piece of theater or an opera, whatever it is, any work of art, a sculpture, a movie, a book, generates what is called, I think, suspension of disbelief. When I saw The Exorcist, during the course of the movie, I bought into everything. <laughs> I believed Satan was in that girl. I was scared. <laughs> I really was, oh. And I'll never forget when Max von Sydow, Father Karish, shows up. It was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and the, and the, I mean, the whole thing, I was into it. Um, when the movie was over, it was a wonderful experience. The whole theater was electric, you know. And when the movie was over, Jim O'Rourke and George Folsey and I went out for coffee. And we were talking, 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 all excited about the movie. And uh, I went home and slept like a baby. George and Jim had nightmares for two months. Yeah. <laughs> I always felt that the Catholic Church should give... Uh, William Friedkin some kind of award because you know, that movie made believers of a lot of people at least well, for two hours. Do you think that uncertain times uh, in, increase or diminish an audience's appetite for horror? That's an excellent question. <laughs> you know, um, World War II, despite the horrendous, the horrors of World War II, um, much of which American public was completely unaware of mm. at the time. But despite how horrible war is, the country was fighting an evil that they understood. <laughs> you know, I mean, Hitler, what, you know, the Nazis, even now in movies, you see Nazis all the time because they're the best villains because forget it, <laughs> bad. 
You know, there's no, they don't have to have backstories. They're Nazis, you know, <laughs> they're race, you know, they have a lot of attributes of our current president, but they are really bad, evil. Um, yes, I, I would think that in times of panic and trouble, I mean, certainly the first wave of horror films um, came about it, you know, during World War One, and mm-hmm. the, the Asian the Asian flu after that, and then the Depression. Um, but I don't know if you can make that exact correlation because there's a very okay. We're, I'm going to throw out several different concepts here. Okay. The first being that horror, fantasy, sci-fi, or science fiction. Um, these genres in the movies, really, when the talkies came in, were considered B product. You're listening to my interview with John Landis, editor of John Landis Presents, the Library of Horror Haunted Houses, classic stories of doors that should never be opened. There were rare exceptions. Forbidden Planet, um, Day the Earth Stood Still. Very rare exceptions, actually. <laughs> um you know, if you look at even the great universal pictures in the silence, they made big budget Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, The Man Who Laughs. I mean, big budget. But then in the talkies, Frankenstein, Dracula, these were not big budget pictures. Mm-hmm. These were formula pictures. Um, beautiful, but not extravaganzas. When they were so successful, then Paramount made, you know, Paramount made some wonderful pre-code horror pictures. Have you, you've seen uh, the Frederick March Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Or, or Island of Lost Souls? That is still the use of shadows in that movie uh, as these, these half animal, half humanoid creatures are running and is, is still uh, the kind of, that's the stuff of nightmares still a hundred years later. There's a shot in that movie that I saw it on TV as a kid, you know, that freaked me out and still is one of the creepiest shots I've ever seen in a movie, which is, it's a, an adaptation of an HG Wells novella called the Island of Dr. Moreau. It's been made into a film three times, four times, I'm sorry, four times. Um, Most of them not very good. Island of Lost Souls is great, but it takes liberties with Wells' book. They all add a woman, (laughs) you know, and the strong, weird, sexual weirdness. Um, But in that one, the one with Charles Lawton, who's brilliantly evil in it and sadistic and there's the house of pain Mm, which is what his experiments call his laboratory because he does all these genetic mutations all these uh surgeries without anesthetic and creates these mutate these beast men and it's a it's a really gruesome movie. It's pre-code, I have to emphasize that. So there's no tiptoeing around it. It's right there. And when the beast men finally revolt 
and Lawton is you know, beating them back with his whip and he's finally trapped, there's a shot and it's gleaming black and white photography, you know, and it's this white enamel cabinet, medical cabinet with glass sides and glass shelves. And on the shelves are laid out shiny surgical instruments, saws, scalpels, for really ugh, forceps. And when the beast men are gonna take their revenge on Lawton, they, they pick him up and they push, put him down on the operating table. And then there's just this shot of the scalpel cabinet, I don't know, and it's shattered by hooves and claws and paws and you know they just take the instruments in there and you don't see it yeah. but you hear it and i'll never forget lawton's screams <laughs> it's horrible it's one of the great horrifying creepy horrible <laughs> moments in cinema anyway but it's not a ghost yeah in movies i think it's harder to uh deal with ghost um there have only been four or five really out of the hundreds of of movies dealing with ghosts that are successful in showing the ghost often if you show the ghost now certainly in older films they would have had to do it more or less practically in terms of special effects now you can have some ethereal kind of CGI spirit or something that you might be able to show. But I, I, I think that whatever you can imagine in the shadows behind that door that should never be opened is going to be more horrifying than anything that you could show me in terms of a ghost. Well, that's what the author of a ghost story in literature has is the, the reader, his audience is his collaborator. Yeah. Well, that's why, um, Guillermo del Toro says that horror is not just a genre, it's self-knowledge. So that when you figure out what it is that scares you, and when you understand what, why you go to a movie and why ghosts scare you more than Frankenstein does, or why true crime stories scare you more than a, a vampire story, you're learning about yourself as much as you are about the genre itself. In the, in the, uh, in the earlier book I did... Uh monsters in the movies i do have chapters on the the major monsters <laughs> and i also did interviews sadly with several people who are no longer with us mm -hmm. but i interviewed ray harryhausen christopher lee sam raimi john carpenter yeah. guillermo del toro and joe dante and all of them i posed the same questions and one of the things i said is what are you afraid of one and two, what is a monster? And what's interesting is John Carpenter gave an answer similar to me, which is that it, I, I'm not afraid of any monster. I'm not afraid of vampires, dragons, zombies, I'm anything. They don't scare me. What terrifies me is people. And my wife, for instance, she can see any horror, any horror film, no matter how gory or outrageous. She can, you know, see any action film, no matter how stupid and violent. But she will not see Psycho, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, 
um, anything like that, Silence of the Lambs, yep. because those are real. Those people exist. For me, it's always In Cold Blood. That's a movie that I cannot watch. Uh, I will watch Dracula on a loop. I will watch any of those things on a loop because uh, the scariest thing are people. And In Cold Blood being based on a true story and the randomness of the crime is so horrifying uh, that, that that movie, to my money, is one of the scariest movies ever made. It has wonderful acting in that. Yeah. Richard Brooks. Um, and, and that it's in black and white and has an almost documentary made. feel to it. You know, it, it, and Truman Capote. I mean, yeah. have you ever read the book? I have. I have the read the book. Creepy. But yeah. I had, okay, I had an experience that's similar to what you're saying, but in real life. When we shot the Blues Brothers in Chicago, uh, the movie opens with uh, John Belushi's character, Jake, being released from Joliet Prison. And it's ironic because when we shot at Joliet Prison, it was a serious lockdown. Now it's a tourist attraction. It's like Alcatraz, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, but we had with us, there was incredible security um, to get in the, you know, all the car, all the our two trucks we were allowed in with equipment. You know, you pull over, it's interesting, you pull over a trough, and there's men down in the trough looking with flashlights under your car, you know, wow. and they search it. They take off the hubcaps and it's wild and we get searched. And anyway, and so with, cause there were some very dangerous guys in there and we were, it was a Victorian prison, which is what I liked about it. It was so grim and fortress like, uh, but we were given about 150 prisoners to use as extras. And we're on the yard hanging around for a shot and John's dressed as a prisoner, you know. And there was this very tall, skinny kid, long neck, a real classic kind of, you know, gawky guy. And the guard said to me, that guy, <laughs> yeah. He said, he's in here for life with no parole. So what'd he do? He murdered his mother, his father, his three sisters and brother with an ax. You're listening to my interview with John Landis, editor of John Landis Presents the Library of Horror Haunted Houses, classic stories of doors that should never be opened. I said, what? And he told me. And so I called Belushi, John, that guy? I tell him. And John, being John Belushi, walks up to him and said, I heard why you're in here. And the guy looked down, embarrassed. And John said, what happened? And I'll never forget, the guy looked at him and said, well, I went crazy. And I got chills. So it's like, oh, it's like Norman Bates. You know, we all go a little crazy sometimes. Can you imagine? Wow. Whoa. And, and, and did did he make the cut? Is he in the film? Do you see him? In he's the an film? extra. I mean, he's, he's not an he, extra, but he's, he's one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But uh, that was a really disturbing moment. Yeah, I should let you go. One more question, though. Is that Alfred Hitchcock behind you wearing a little light-up hat? It is a bust of Hitch wearing a Sons of the Desert fez. Uh, 
But the bust of Hitch was, was given to me by Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah, I don't know how many years it was sitting there, but I, he, one day I said to him, when you're done with that, can I have it? <laughs> <laughs> and Mr. Hitchcock said, take it, take it. And I, you know, I, yes, sir, I'm out of there. <laughs> After Hitch had passed away, I mean, many years later, I get a call from the Universal Tour. Could they borrow my bust? Because we would like to have a bronze, a real bronze head of Hitchcock at the studio tour entrance. And, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was a major stockholder at MCA, and he used to, I, I don't think they would have played in Canada, but it, it, when the tour, when they started to pour big money in the tour in the, in the 70s, I've he did commercials. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some of them are really funny. I mean, they didn't use it, but he did one when he said, you know, Universal Studios, and then he said, because the catch line was, watch Hollywood in the act. And Hitch said... Watch Hollywood in the act and get in the way. <laughs> and it turned out it was true because Lou Wasserman said, this is making too much money. So anything shooting on the back lot, you stopped for the tours to go through, those trams. And it was a nightmare. <laughs> I shot several times. Three Amigos I shot on the back lot in this one little scene and that actually the silent movie part of it. Because on the back lot is this little tiny Mexican village, yeah. little church. That's the oldest still standing set in Hollywood. It was built for a Tom Mix silent. Wow. And uh, so we used it for our silent. Yeah. Um, but the tram, we had to stop every 15 minutes to let the trams go through. <laughs> and Steve Martin, Chevy Chase, and Marty Short in their costumes would do little dances and shoot their guns and stuff. And I always thought, you know, they're gonna go home and tell people, you know, when you go on the tour, you see big stars and they perform for you. <laughs> what a lot of fun that was. That was my interview with John Landis, author of John Landis Presents the Library of Horror Haunted Houses. It's a book that you can find wherever you buy fine books. Next up, Country star Jason Blaine stops by to talk about life in Nashville and making music during the pandemic. I began this interview by talking about how the pandemic has put the kibosh on so much live music. I asked if he had a special memory of a live show that he could share. This is what Jason Blaine said. Oh, gosh. Yes. I mean, just being packed into uh, an, arena, an arena or a festival, um, it's mostly the times like it's the faces of my friends, like, like being at a show and, and just remember, you know, having some drinks, enjoying the music. You know, I, I think about seeing one of my heroes. I think about seeing Brian Adams here in Nashville at Ascend. Uh, you know, we, we had great, you know, great seats right up front and got to go backstage after and hang out a little bit with Brian and, and, and meet him, which was a big thrill for me. Sure. I do music for a career, but in that, that night I was, just the Brian Adams fan I've been since I was a kid. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, I guess, I mean, you can't help but take that for granted because you just never would have imagined a day where that rug gets pulled out from underneath of us all. And, and they say, we can't do that anymore, or at least for now or until whenever. And it's, it's a terrifying thought. We all want to be able to do that again. 
do you miss it? Do you miss playing live? Yeah, very much, very much. This is the first summer in, um, oh my gosh, um, at least 14 years uh, of not doing a show, possibly 15 years of not doing a show at all in some capacity. And, and then even before my own artist career, uh, I made a living as a side guitar player for other artists and stuff, maybe in the five years before that. So right. I've been on stage somewhere uh, in the summertime for the past 20 years. And, and, uh, and it's mostly like, it, it's yes, it's, it's playing for the fans. Like, absolutely. I love that because that's what makes the music all worthwhile. When you write a song and record it, if you're lucky enough that radio plays it and it becomes a success and you get out there and then you get this crazy, gratification of you know uh, of folks singing back to you and 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 then it's all you know co it's all one it's all like the circle's complete you know the work is has been put in you're getting it back from the fans and there's no higher high for me than that um but it's also all of the it's just the backstage you know after the show before the show banter you know silly dirty jokes from your <laughs> band guys you know the road humor and just all of the personalities that everybody brings to the table and and all of the you know just shenanigans general shenanigans and stuff from you know i've got some of the funniest band guys and people that i've toured with you look forward to seeing everybody every tour season not just your own crew but then you'll see some of the familiar you know monitor people or front of house people or lighting people that you've you know you've come grown accustomed to seeing over the course of touring all across the country for all those years. And you just kind of take for granted that it's like, Oh, Hey man, good to see you again. And so I miss all of that. I've often wondered what it's like to stand on stage and hear an audience of hundreds, thousands, whatever it might be, sing something that you wrote. Well, that was the, that was the seed that, that, you know, set me on a life journey years and years ago. My first concert was in 1993. I was 13. So folks can do the math on that. I'm, I turned 40 this year, uh, but I was 13 years old. It was Garth Brooks. It was in Ottawa at the Civic Center Arena. And um, I had been learning to play guitar. I probably started around the age eight or nine and, and started getting a little more serious about it, probably age 10, 11, 12. And that was right in that you know, hot new country, 90s era, right? It was Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson and Vince Gill and Travis Tritton, this Brooks and Dunn, all this 90s movement, yeah. Shania Plain and everything exploded around the early 90s. So Garth was the guy. I mean, 1993, Garth was just, it was just a rocket ship going yeah. like this. Yeah. I was so excited to see. I went with a, with a buddy of mine and, and, and his parents took us to the show and, and, and we were right down front. And there was a moment where Garth was singing. I don't remember if it was the dance or, or unanswered prayers or um, the river or something. It might've been the river, but he was, he was playing, you know, uh, uh, I will sail my vessel till the river runs dry. And, and he just stopped and the whole crowd took, took over. You have to excuse me. I sort of lost my voice a little bit over the weekend, but, uh, the crowd just took over singing and, and, and he just played the guitar and uh, everybody sang along and I just thought how cool was that there was no band it was just Garth in the spotlight playing the acoustic guitar while the whole arena sang his song and I was just a kid soaking that all in and I was thinking what you're thinking like what does that feel like and I've had 
those moments, you know, in my own way with maybe it's a song like they don't make them like that anymore. And, and I'll be singing something and I'll, I'll sing, you know, still combs his hair like Elvis, pays cash. The crowd takes over, pays cash for everything. And that's just, you know, right there, right? All the feels. Yep. And the first time that happened, it about, it about, you know, it about choked me up, you know? Yeah. It, it kind of did, if I'm, if I'm honest, because it was just so emotional. I'm like, wow, you all care about this song and it meant that much to you. And that's the thing, is that when the music means something to somebody else. You're listening to my interview with Jason Blaine. Find his EP, Go With Me, wherever you legally download or buy music. And the songs for Go With Me, the new EP, uh, it's coming out now. It's out in stores now. Does that mean that you wrote these songs during the pandemic or are these songs that you played on the road and you know that audiences love? How does that work? So this, the crazy thing is that this EP has actually been done for about a year. And, uh, and we, were, we had a couple of different times we were going to release it. Um, one being back in March when all of this craziness really got underway. I was literally in the middle of a radio uh, media tour. I was in Toronto and we were doing radio stops. We were in the, the first of the leg of, of, a, of a national tour. Um, we, kinda, we were only about five or six visits in and then all of this craziness began. We kind of really had to reevaluate everything. We just kind of, we just released a couple of singles from the EP and not the whole thing all at once because we really wanted everything to be able to have a fair shot and it's fair attention. So, um, but these songs were actually, uh, I had been writing in, in Nashville for the past six years and, and um, I had so many songs. Like, I mean, I literally have a, a couple of hundred songs. And so uh, I just really picked, uh, I picked uh, four that, that I wrote and two that I, that I didn't write, that I just found, that were sent to me, that I loved, and um, and then that became the CP. It was it was very very hard actually picking picking the songs, and uh, and it's it's hard to say you know if I picked the right ones or the wrong ones. These are just the ones that I was feeling at the time yeah. that I thought went together pretty well in a pretty fun way. They're all different, but they're all they all kind of re reflect a little part of me and and things that I like. Do you think? that when you write songs that it's the more personal stuff that you write about that connects with an audience and that makes for a better song? Sometimes I think, yes, I think, you know, um, for the most part, I think that that's, that that is true. I mean, um, if it's that type of song, you know, I think songs serve different purposes. Like some there's, especially in our genre in country, you know, that I've got other songs that actually have, um, out far outsold, that song and, and I've had other songs perform better at radio songs that went number one or, or songs that, you know, sold or, or streamed more. Um, but, but then you'll see the video, the, the views for that song, you know, will be in the millions on, on YouTube. And then something else that was kind of just a party song might have, you know, of just a fraction of those yeah, views yeah. because it served a different, purpose the video sort of you know connected emotionally to people where sometimes those fun party jammers it doesn't connect on the same emotional level but it still serves its purpose i mean you would i wouldn't want a a whole set of they don't make them like that anymore to go and play you know to make everybody cry at a country festival you know, on a hot summer day
You moved to Nashville in 2006 with your wife and a very small baby. Uh, what were you thinking? That's a big move. Well, I think that you have to be a little bit green uh, to, you know, and, and, and slightly naive and, and fearless. You know, I think that those, I think that that's why we make those moves in our, in our younger days, you know, in our youth, you know, when you really have a lot less to lose. I mean, I mean, we had no money. We were broke, broke, broke. You know, I, even, even though I had a, a couple songs on the radio at the time, um, you know, it, it takes, sometimes it can take upwards of a year till you, till your royalties come in. And, and so and I had just got going and I was kind of self-funding an independent career that was just getting off the ground. My wife had a, had a decent job at, at a, as a ECE teacher at the University of Waterloo. So she, she made pretty good money. So, um, but it, the timing was good. I had, I had been making trips to Nashville before then, meeting people, networking, co-writing. And I kind of felt like there was some people, and it turns out I was right, that were like just waiting to see that commitment, waiting to see me actually make the move and that's why I called my very first record was called make my move and uh and it was just a big leap of faith but you know it was one of those uh we we did we had this little three-month-old baby girl my wife had some maternity leave we had you know maybe two thousand dollars in savings if that we just gave up our apartment put everything in the storage and just went for it and just moved down and turns out you know after a few months four or five months I signed a uh a publishing and production deal and then we were able to get uh, the visas the proper visas and stuff uh, and it was one of those things that you know I, I encourage everybody out there I think that especially in that stage of life where you really don't have anything to lose I mean what's the worst that can happen you know you haven't really done anything yet you know and people do that all the time whether it's a move to Nashville or move you know somewhere else for a job or something you know, it's a little ambitious. I mean, you've got to swing for those fences or you'll regret not not doing it, you know, when you have the chance. That's it for this week. What a fun show. My thanks to John Landis and Jason Blaine. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.